But what I can do well is I can get buybacks. I can survive. Uh, and I, I feel like I really have a strategic advantage at the end of those days because I've really thought through a lot of these elements that I think a lot of people haven't. I consider those my buffer, my, my, my sort of my gambling chips. Where am I in the spectrum between 100% just protecting the chips that I have and 100% trying to build uh, with the chips that I have? Those are some examples of guys that I really saw them doing this, where they were being patient, but opportunistic as well. I don't know that you can convince yourself mentally to play one way that's different than your personality. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I am your host, Steve Fredland. And today we're going to shift gears a little bit. I had a topic already planned out. We already got some audio submitted looking at uh, how do we translate what we learn for larger buy-in tournaments into the daily smaller buy-in tournaments that many of us recreational players play. Uh, but we had a good suggestion here from uh, actually from Andy Kaplan, uh, whose voice you've heard on the Rec Poker podcast. And he thought maybe it'd be a good idea for me to uh, sort of go over my experience with the recent Pot O Gold tournament that was held at Running Aces. Now uh, there's uh, six different day ones and so he thought it might be a good idea while it's fresh for me to to go over how I approached uh, the day ones of those tournaments, how I approached day two, and some of the strategic things that I implemented uh, just to sort of give insight into how I approached it and maybe that'll help some of you. Uh, obviously it'd be great to open up the discussion have some of you give alternative uh, considerations. But really, this episode is just going to be about my experience, and hopefully it'll give you some insight into, into how I'm thinking about these things, some of the things that I learned after playing many days in a row with some of the best players in the state of Minnesota. Um, and so that's what today's going to be about. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful, certainly for me, to, uh, uh, I guess, debrief on what I learned but I hope it'll also be helpful for some of you and open up some other really good discussions. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to quick take a break here and thank Running Aces, and then I'll come back with my thoughts. Uh, before we do that, just a quick note that the adhesive patches have now uh, come in. And if you recall, we got the, the ones that didn't have the adhesive on them, so I gave some of those away to some of you who asked. But we do have the ones with the adhesive backing, so if you're willing to wear those and represent Rec Poker, I uh, gladly get those into your hands so that you can start doing that at your next tournament. So with that, let's take a quick break and then I will come back and share my thoughts from Pot of Gold. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Okay, thank you, Running Aces. Uh, well, as I mentioned on the intro, I just want to talk a bit about the Pot of Gold uh, tournament that I just recently played. Had some good results there, and so we'll go over that. Uh, because I spent the last, basically the last four full days playing poker and whatever free time I had doing work and other things I had to get done, I haven't had a lot of time to really construct a, a very fluid I guess uh, podcast here, but uh, uh, I think I'll try to work through this and hopefully it'll it'll be of some value. To start with, the Pot of Gold tournament is is a pretty common, maybe four or five times a year that Running Aces does something like this, where it's a two hundred and eighty dollar tournament. It's actually two ninety if you do the add on for additional chips, 
and they run six different day ones. So there's six different flights of day one, usually a Wednesday night, Thursday night at 6 p.m., a Friday at 10 and 6, and a Saturday at 10 and 6. And then uh, whoever advances through uh, will play day two at noon on Sunday. So for 290 bucks, you get 20,000 chips, you get half hour levels, and they play 16 levels on day one. So it's about eight and a half hours with breaks to get all the way through. Now, one of the interesting things that they do is they have this idea of buyback and accumulator bonus. So if you get a stack through on one of the day ones, you can play another flight, and if you get another stack to, uh, through to day two, you will play the bigger stack, and the smaller stack you actually sell for $1,200. And so in my situation, I played four of the flights, and I had to rebuy on two of the flights, Unfortunately, I ran kings into aces for one of them. Uh, but so I fired a total of six bullets, played four different flights, and out of those four flights, I actually bagged three times. And the first bag I got was really small, about 17,000. I just wanted to get a bag because I knew if I could get through again, that bag would be worth $1,200, which it ultimately was. And then I played another flight and got through. Uh, actually, I played both flights on Friday and bagged both times. So I got the 17,000. Then I got the 153,000, which was my biggest stack. And then I played again Saturday morning and actually got a flight through there um, for about 30,000. And we'll get into a little bit of strategy there. But so this buyback is, is a great idea in terms of building the prize pool because people like me are going to play multiple times, even if you've already gotten through, uh, you get the 1200 bucks per. So in my case, I fired six bullets which was about just under 1800 bucks and I got two buybacks so 2400 bucks back so I made 600 bucks before even going into Sunday so that's a great deal for me now there's a lot of um, I guess controversy around the buybacks because potentially uh, you could have collusion where you could have one person dumping chips to another person as long as they save enough to get through so that could happen you also have a lot of stalling going on at the end of day ones and I'll admit occasionally that's me because strategically it's the right thing to do. I need to make sure that I have enough chips to get through and so I will stall, I will tank. Uh, and that, that's part of the experience as you get into level 15 and 16, you see more and more of that happening. That's pretty frustrating to players. So that's some of the downsides with it, but some of the upsides of course are people like me that fire multiple bullets. Um, if I had just bagged the first day, been happy with 30 or 40,000, uh, I went to play the other flights and so the prize pool would have been diminished. So. It's sort of a pros and cons thing about that, but that is what they do is the buybacks. They also do an accumulator bonus, which takes the total of all of your bags, and whoever has the greatest total, whether it's just one massive bag or several smaller bags, uh, they also get a bonus, and I believe that bonus is $2,000. So I've gotten that in the past. I did not get it this time, um, but that's something that's also you can go for, and it, it encourages people who have maybe a couple of bags for 300000 or so to go for, a, for another bag and try to get both the buyback and the accumulator. So it, it sort of encourages more, more entries uh, in that way. So that's what the overall pot of gold is. Uh, as I mentioned, I played four different flights, fired six different bullets, and got three bags through. And one of the questions is, is um, that, that Andy suggested that I maybe talk about is sort of the strategic approach um, uh, for this. So in an, in an overall framework, the way that I approach it, and part of this is because I'm not a top player. Um, so I really don't have aspirations of winning it. Surely I think I'm going to someday. Clearly I think you know if things go right, I could, but I'm certainly not a favorite to win it. So the reality of going for the big dollars at the top 
while pushing myself is not something that I'm really expecting to happen. But what I can do well is I can get buybacks. I can survive. Uh, and I, I feel like I really have a strategic advantage at the end of those days because I've really thought through a lot of these elements that I think a lot of people haven't. How to play when you're trying to get a stack, how to manage your buffer, all of those things that we can talk about a little bit on here, I feel like I have an advantage. So the way that I approach the overall 280 framework is I generally plan on playing one or two flights, hopefully early in the week, the Wednesday or the Thursday, and if I get a bag, then I'm sort of committed to playing the entire thing, as many flights as I can. Um, if I don't bag the first couple of flights, I generally just stop and I don't play the rest of the weekend because for me, most of the value is in those buybacks. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, but consider that I had two bags um, that I got bought back and each one paid 1200 bucks, which is more than four times what the entry fee is. Well, to get four times your entry fee on day two, you need to basically finish in the top 15 people, which there were 750 entries, so you basically need to finish in the top 2% to get four times your money. And for me, that would be a tremendous result. Now, clearly, there's a lot more money up top. It paid 38000 to win the thing. But uh, for me, so much of the value is in those buybacks that that's how I strategically approach the overall idea of going into these six-day-one tournaments that Running Aces specifically puts together. And they're phenomenal. They do a great job uh, with them. So that's my overall approach. Now, in terms of playing the day ones, um, unless it's my last day one, uh, well, even then, I guess it's the same sort of idea. I, I tend to have this, um, this approach where I look at how many chips do I need to have by level by the end of level 12. And again, we play 16 levels. How many chips do I need to have by the end of level 12 to feel like I can make it through um, simply by folding every hand? And so I do the math. I look at the blinds, how many, uh, how, many, how many chips do I have to pay per orbit per level, 13 through 16, how many orbits do we expect to play per round, and then I build in some buffer in there as well, and I come up with a number, and I say, if I can have this many chips by the end of level 12, I will feel like I could fold my way to a bag with some buffer uh, and not have to be worried. So I do the math. I don't want to share it on the air here because I don't want somebody taking my math, using it, and it not working and then saying, you said that. So I'm not gonna do that. If you catch me uh, offline, I'm happy to share that with you, but I don't wanna go public with that number. But that's generally how I approached it. I assumed two orbits per level. Uh, and the buffer is built in because you know how sometimes you end up five-handed and if things play really fast or the table's playing really fast, sometimes you end up um, going more than two orbits. Sometimes you end up playing, paying the blinds more than just the antes. And so, um, so I generally build in some buffer. And then I, I have that number, and I say, okay, I want to I want to have that number as I start level 13. And if I have a number that's greater than that number, I consider those my buffer, my 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 sort of my gambling chips. And I'm not going to be careless with them, especially level 13 or level 14. But as we get closer to the end, I'm going to be more aggressive with those gambling chips. And a lot of people aren't really paying attention to all of that. That's, a, that's what I refer to as my strategic advantage. So I have those, those marginal chips. Let's say, for example, uh, this is completely hypothetical, but let's say I want to have, at some point uh, in the tournament in the last few levels, I want to have 40,000 chips. Now I have 75,000 chips. So I can decide, do I want to just kind of grind that 75 in and try to make day two, um, you know, try to have that 10 to 15 big blind stack? Or am I comfortable... 
just getting a mini baby stack through and gambling with the rest. So in that case, I'd have 35,000 of sort of margin chips available to me. Now what that allows me to do is if I find a spot where, say for example, uh, the blinds are uh, 1,500, 3,000 with a 500 ante, so there's, I don't know, almost 10,000 chips in the middle, and somebody raises to 7,000, and then there's a call and a call behind. So now all of a sudden there's 50,000 chips in the middle. I could say I'm going to take that 35,000 chips that I have on margin, and I'm going to raise. You know, maybe not the whole thing, maybe I do 25, but I could take 35,000 or 30,000, and I raise right in that spot which puts a ton of pressure on the table. Now, the original raiser may shove or somebody else may shove and I just fold. And then I say, well, I took my shot, now I'm just gonna fold to the money, fold to the bag. But if that works, all of a sudden I've picked up, you know, whatever that, whatever I said that amount was, um, I pick up 20, 30,000 chips or whatever, uh, if they all fold, and now I have 65,000 chips on margin. And I can decide, do I wanna grind that into day two or do I want to gamble with that as well? And so there's this, this ongoing sort of what minimum threshold do I need to make sure that I don't ruin my chance at getting a bag? And what is the residual amount that I have to gamble with that I can use, that I can apply pressure and try to build? And if the table cooperates, I could build a ton of chips. And I've done that at the end of the days where I've built a 260,000 chips simply because people want to make day two and you can keep applying the pressure with those marginal chips. So I think that's a real strategic advantage that I feel like I have that I highly recommend you think that through ahead of time. I put notes in my phone so I know what my thresholds are at each level that I wanna to get to so I know how much margin I have to play with. And then as you, as you proceed, uh, because you built in margin, often even if you folded your entire level, uh, you end up with more margin chips that can be put to use. Maybe you get to see a free flop uh, or a cheap flop. And so in my case, um, the way that I approached it, I had, you know, just a few chips at the end uh, that I had available for margin. I had like king, ten of clubs. Uh, somebody raised, um, you know, I called because I could on margin. And I was going to fold everything, literally everything, unless the flop came three kings, three tens, or the royal flush, or straight flush. That's the only thing I would play. So if I, if I flopped king, ten, ten a full house, I would have folded right there because of my situation, because I already had a bag through, because I don't think I can even get to that bag, even if I get the action that I'm looking for, I'll never get a bag bigger than that. So unless I flop the absolute nuts that couldn't be beat by the river, uh, I was going to fold. And that's what I did. So those, those sorts of weird things happen. I folded pocket aces, I folded pocket queens, pre-flop, all of those things because I didn't want to put my chips at risk. So that's the overall approach. Uh, in terms of how to finish off those day ones when you have a buyback tournament. Now, one of the things, as we kind of step back and say, what are my overall approaches uh, to day one and what's becoming, I guess, my approach more in general in viewing, um, viewing a tournament um, is really this notion, and this is something I worked on both on and off the table, is this idea of what sort of mode am I in right now? Um, because I look at, you know, through all the interviews that we've done here, all the conversations that we've had, it feels like there's so many factors to consider. And so I'm trying to dumb that down to three or four things that I really have to think about. And one of the ways I'm doing that is taking all of those um, factors in terms of the tournament consideration, the bubble, all of those things, and asking my, myself a question, where am I in the spectrum between... 100% just protecting the chips that I have and 100% trying to build uh, with the chips that I have. 
So what I mean by that is if I'm at the end of day one, like we just talked about, where I have to fold every hand to get $1,200, I'm in 100% protection mode and I fold 100% of my hands, including pocket aces. If I'm in 100% build mode, that means we're in the middle stage of the tournament and I have like two big blinds. I'm getting in with any two cards, it's 100% shove. That's the two very ends of the spectrum, but every t everywhere else, there's sort of somewhere in between there. And so as I think about a tournament now, when I think about the blinds being 2550 and we have 200 big blinds and, and all these sorts of things, I'm generally in more protection mode than I am in build mode. I'm looking for opportunities to build, but I'm really looking to protect. I'm not looking to go into high variance sort of mode there. Once the, because it's just not that good of an opportunity, usually, um, uh, you're looking for those speculative hands so you can flop a set or, or flop a straight or flop a flush, that kind of thing. But generally, I'm not really trying to play big pots. I'm not really trying to introduce a lot of variance. I'm mostly in chip protection mode, hoping that I get those spots but not wanting to spend too many chips along the way. So this has resulted in me lately being much more ultra patient early and really being patient throughout, but really making sure that what I'm doing is a really good investment until my blinds start to get to a point where I feel like I really need to go into a build mode. Um, so it, it, that's a different sort of approach than other people have. But what I found is that um, that's served me really well in both these $280 tournaments as well as the dailies. Um, now I get to the to the build mode much quicker in the the dailies that have 15 minute levels But it's the same overall concept Part of that is because what I learned from playing all of these day ones playing some of the qualifiers playing some of the dailies Is that really the only time I was losing significant chips early was when I tried to run a bluff or I overplayed a hand or you know that sort of thing um, and, and otherwise, I was able to sort of build up gradually. And so if I could avoid those landmines um, or those overly aggressive spots, those over, overly aggressive lines that I took, I could definitely survive and thrive much longer um, than when I was taking more of those spots. So that's, that's another area that I really tried to work on uh, here. I do want to talk about one hand that came up uh, in one of the day ones. There are several. And I did text a few of you or, or DM'd you on Twitter asking your take on this. And so I'm going to put this out here. Uh, we don't have responses from other players, but uh, just think this through and, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this hand. Um, so in this spot, I had about 32,000 chips. The blinds were 250,500 with a 75 ante. So uh, I had about 60 big blinds, 64 big blinds, I guess and I'm under the gun. And I open with King Queen of Hearts. So that's the first question is, you know, should I be opening with King Queen of Hearts? Um, uh, honestly, this part of the stage of the tournament, that's it's one of the lower parts of lower hand ranges I'd be opening under the gun with, especially on a pretty aggressive uh, table. But I, I opened with King Queen of Hearts and I opened to 1400, uh, just under two and a half X, uh, or sorry, it's about yeah, a little over two and a half X, almost three X. Uh, and Pajan Lu, who many of you maybe know, he was on my direct left, of course, making it difficult for me all day. Uh, so he's under the gun plus one, and he just calls. And then it folds around to the big blind, who also calls. So there's a little over 5,000 chips in the pot. Uh, I've got about 30,000 behind. And the flop comes ace, eight, seven. And the ace and the eight are both hearts. So I pick up the nut flush draw. Uh, the big blind checks to me, and I decide to bet 
uh, fairly small, uh, which is something I'm also trying to do is bet a little bit smaller into pots. But I bet 2,000 into the 5,100 chip pot, so about 40% of the pot. Now Patient Lou raises to 4,500. And then the big blind shoves for his remaining 11,000. Um, so as I mentioned, I started the hand with about 32,000. Uh, Pajan Lou has me out chipped. He has probably around 50,000 chips. So anyway, so when I bet 2,000, it's now 7,100. The guy, uh, Louie, he, he calls. So now we're at like 11,6. The guy shoves for 11, so it's like 22,6 in there. And I've got 9,000 to call, but I also have to worry about Lou behind me who had just re-raised me on the flop. So the question is, what do I do in this spot? Um, I elected to fold in this spot, and, uh, and Paige and Lou uh, did decide to call. Uh, Lou had two pair. He had uh, ace eight, I believe. No, he had ace seven, and the under the, the uh, big blind player had pocket eights. So I would have had the nut flush draw up against a set of eights and two pair aces and sevens. So, you know, that, that's one of those spots where I'm like, I'm not sure what to do. I'm playing my entire stack. Do I, do I want to put my entire stack here, uh, 60 big blinds or at least 50 more big blinds at risk on a draw, um, you know, where I could potentially be facing these hands. And so not all of my outs are even outs or there's outs that are going to beat me with, with uh, full houses and such. Um, so I did decide to fold. I would have won a huge pot uh, because the heart did come in the turn and it did, never did pair the board. But the question is, what's the right play? And that, that one had me in the grinder for a while. So thanks to a couple of you. I know Matt Hamilton and Joe Bernard uh, gave me some thoughts on this, and I appreciated your thoughts as well. So uh, that was one of the big hands that I faced in one of the day ones. I did go on to bag that day. So, um, you know, that again, it, it sort of shows... Um, you don't have to play all of those big spots if they're close. Uh, I trusted that I could continue to play well. I had a decent stack. I could get there without that. Obviously, that would have been a nice pot to win, but I'm not sure it was worth um, you know, the, the cost of potentially going broke uh, in that situation. So that was a big spot. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about day two uh, here. Um, so I, I ended up going in... Uh, there was a hundred and something, maybe like 107 people that advanced. 72 were going to get paid. Uh, I went in as I believe the about the 25th to 30th biggest stack with 153,000. Average stack doesn't really mean anything, but it was around 120, 130,000. So I was a little bit above average. The blinds were 5,000. So I had about 30 big blinds. And so when I woke up uh, Sunday morning, I looked at the table draw. I sent something out on Twitter. Several of you gave me gave me uh, feedback on some of the players that I was playing with, which was very helpful. Uh, but what I do when I go to a day two is I actually look at my table draw and I, I draw a picture of where I'm seated, uh, the other players, how many chips they have, and I, I look them up on Hendon Mob to see if I what I can learn about them. I'm looking for things like uh, the level, the the size of tournaments they play. Are they normally playing the thirty dollar, fifty dollar, or do they only play the big MSPT eleven hundreds? Do they play World Poker Tour? Do they play WSOP? What's their experience level? I want to find that out. And also, I look at their finishes quite a bit. Uh, do they have a lot of first, seconds, and thirds, or are all of their finishes um, deeper down? Because that gives me an idea of the type of player. Generally, um, more aggressive players are going to have a lot of first, seconds, and thirds but not as many caches. And the more passive players, even though good players, 
are going to have more caches that are outside of the top three. So those are the things that I'm looking for in addition to whatever experience I have with them and whatever I hear from uh, other players who are willing to give me feedback. So thanks to those of you who were able to provide me some of that feedback as well. Uh, and so as I mentioned, I go into day two with, with an overall mindset. I'm going to adjust to the table, but in this case, I was in seat five and Alex Moa, uh, who some of you know, a very aggressive, very talented player, uh, was in seat 10. Uh, and he had a big stack. He had about 400,000 chips. So I knew he was going to make it very difficult for our entire table. Uh, he was actually seat nine, if I recall. Seat nine. Um, and so what that meant was um, if I was on the button, because we were only playing nine-handed, he would be under the gun. So if he folded under the gun, that would give me some opportunities. But other than that, there's a chance he was going to be in every hand with me, which is sort of crazy to think about uh, because of the situation. So um, I knew that uh, if I wanted to play hands, I had to be ready to play them aggressively against Alex. He will call with any two cards, especially against a player like me that he, he knows that he can outplay uh, and apply aggression to. Uh, and so he, I knew it was going to be really tricky. So I decided going into day two, uh, my hand ranges in each of the different positions that I was going to play, how hard I was going to play them, if I was going to play them, um, was I willing to get it in against Alex uh, if I needed to pre-flop. And so I really did think some of that stuff through, had a plan going in, and it was in this situation it was a very, um, a very tight plan. I also had done the work to find out that we were going to be the, three, the third table that broke. And so by the time our table broke, we would be in the money, just in the money with maybe 70 players left. And so that went into my consideration as well. If I can just grind um, and survive, hopefully with a decent stack, uh, I could make the money and have enough chips and potentially get a better table draw uh, as a result. Um, and so uh, everything kind of went according to plan. Alex was, was aggressive and he just kind of kept on coming. And um, it was interesting because another very aggressive player, Eric Wright, had a big stack, 400,000, and he ended up joining our table directly on Alex's left uh, within the first 15, 20 minutes of the tournament. And they went into war with a huge, huge pot, uh, about a million chip pot, and Alex won that one, so Alex was even more aggressive then. Uh, but it kind of changed the dynamic having Eric there as well. Um, anyway, so, so I went in, kind of had a predefined range, um, a predefined uh, approach in terms of protection versus building, um, and decided to, to, um, to kind of go over there. There's a couple of situations where um, I decided to, to make plays because I just couldn't find opportunity, I couldn't find spots. Uh, I did, do a, did a check raise early. Um, I got to see a flop for pretty cheap. I checked an aggressive player bet. I raised... Um, they re-raise and I had to fold. I did an early re-raise over two calls. Uh, neither of those worked. I thought they would because I was very tight and clearly they had some big hands and they were. They told me later they had big hands. Who knows if they did or not, but I actually believed them in that spot. So I, I had two opportunities where I felt like it was a really good spot uh, to take a shot uh, and neither of them worked. Uh, I didn't have any wins at showdown. So basically I couldn't afford to play a, play a hand and I was getting down, I got down to around 90,000 chips with the blinds at 6,000, so I now had like 15 or 16 bigs, and we were getting close to the money, so I decided to uh, to just grind to the money. It, it doesn't take that long in these tournaments. Within the first hour, hour and 10 minutes, we were in the money. So I just ground to the money um, with about 15 big blinds, and then it was a matter of just sort of looking for those good spots, because now all the short stacks are looking for that double up, and there's a lot of action, and I just couldn't pick up 
a big hand. I did pick up uh, the pocket queens at one point and, uh, and did a little 2.5x raise, uh, and it just folded all the way around, which is incredibly disappointing, including Alex who folded, uh, <laughs> which was disappointing because I thought that'd be my spot. Uh, but I picked up a few blinds, and then I was able to um, to shove all in. I was on the button. Uh, there was a raise by a pretty loose player in front of me. Uh, I decided to shove with ace-five, primarily uh, hoping that that would get that person to fold. Or if they were raising with something like king-queen, king-jack, I'd get the call and try to get the double. Um, unfortunately, the big blind woke up with pocket nines. Uh, they reshipped, which luckily got ace-ten to fold. Um, and then uh, I did hold up. I hit an ace on the turn. Uh, I would have been busted by ace-10, but my ace-5 was good with the ace on the turn against the pocket nines. So that was pretty lucky. I could have been out of the tournament right there with the min cash uh, for about 450 bucks. Uh, but that got me up. That got me going a little bit um, there. Um, so that, that gave me some chips to play a little bit. Um, and then... Um, uh, ground down a bit. So I had like 260,000 somewhere at that point. The blinds kind of kept eating away, uh, looking for spots. Uh, and finally, we got down to 34 players left. So, you know, we, we've made it pretty far here. The, the bumps were happening every nine players. So 34 players left. The next pay bump wasn't until 27. So I had to survive seven more players. And at this point, I had 200,000 chips. The blinds were at uh, 1,000, 8,000, 16,000. So I only had about 12 big blinds. Uh, there was an early position raised from a guy who'd been opening a lot of pots, and then Alex called behind, and I was on the button with king-queen suited. So it felt like a pretty good spot for me. I felt even if, uh, uh, you know, the first guy could be fairly fairly wide because he'd been opening a fair amount of pots, so I could possibly get him to fold, and if, if I don't, uh, that's a pretty good hand to see a flop with. I didn't think Alex had a huge hand because I think he would have re-raised, even though he is quite capable of trapping. Um, so I thought I could get him to fold, and again, if not, uh, this is a good spot to go because uh, you know I made the last pay bump, uh, the pay bump that happened to 36 players, and now I had a long ways to go to get to 27. I need to make something happen. How many good spots are there going to be? Maybe there could be better, but this felt like a pretty good spot to me. I didn't have to worry about getting outplayed. If I just call here, yeah, I could see a flop, but then I'm inviting the blinds to come in. I think the play here is either fold or shove. Uh, I decided to shove. Uh, unfortunately for me, the early position raiser had ace-queen uh, called me and busted me, which, um, you know, obviously I'm not happy about that, but I felt actually okay about the play. Uh, I haven't really assessed that one with other people yet, so uh, if that's a situation that you have some other insight in, I would love to hear uh, that as well. Uh, you know, shoot me a note or post something on Twitter or Facebook and let me know what you think about that. So as I think about what I learned from this, uh, as I mentioned you know, I played with a ton of, of just great players. Um, but one of the things that I learned certainly is that aggression can definitely win tournaments, but it can also lose tournaments. Uh, as I've talked about many times before, it just it increases variance. And I saw so many people, really good players, who were aggressive early and building big stacks, uh, just disappeared, uh, both on day one and on day two. And obviously, you know, you play with that speed, you could build a massive stack, or you could lose it. And I do believe that more times than not, you're going to lose it. Uh, the, the, the upside of that, of course, is that if you have a massive stack, you have a chance to make uh, the top three, which is where the real money is. So it's certainly a trade-off. Um, you know, and that's where I wish I could see the statistics on some of these players. What is their in-the-money percentage? What is their ROI um, and sort of try to figure out what that sweet spot is because it's such a it's such a trade-off between your percentage of getting in the money and your ROI. 
Uh, I've shared this on earlier podcasts, but it's probably been a while and many of you maybe haven't heard it, but I shared some of my stats on how my ROI increased as my in the money percentage decreased. But then I reached a point where uh, it was I was playing too aggressive. I wasn't cashing enough, and so it sort of switched over. So I believe there is sort of this sweet spot of uh, the percentage in the money that will actually maximize your ROI. You know, generally you think, well, the more I get in the money, the higher my ROI. But that's not true. I was actually at one point cashing, I think, 35 to 40 percent of the tournaments that I was playing. I think it was around 35 percent. But I was a losing player because my caches generally were min caches. Um, I think I was getting in, I think my average uh, cash was like three times the buy-in and I was only, I was cashing 35%, which basically breaks you, makes you a break-even player versus cashing maybe 20% of the time with a factor of 9x makes you a winning player. So I think uh, part of that is this, this idea of aggression has to be tamed and really considered in the broader scheme of things. So that's a conversation for another day. But I learned about aggression and continue to see that that whole uh uh, double-edged sword idea of aggression. Um, but I also learned that uh, what recently has become my formula for success was really affirmed in these tournaments, in the day ones and the days twos, which is being incredibly patient, um, but yeah, looking for opportunity. So I would say opportunistically patient. It doesn't. It's not patience based solely on my hand selection. It's patience based on my hand selection as well as opportunity selection, not trying to make things happen that aren't really there, but when I see those opportunities, taking advantage of those. So I'd say patience, hand selection, but also pot control is another way in terms of um, maybe reducing the betting by one street by doing a check back, or maybe betting a third of the pot rather than two thirds of the pot as I was prone to do before. Uh, All of those things sort of reducing the variance. Yes, it may mean the pot that you win is smaller. Yes, it may mean that occasionally somebody sucks out on you that wouldn't have otherwise. But in general, I believe it's reducing variance, especially in the early to mid stages, uh, which is going to help you have that good combination of survival and building. Clearly, at the end of the tournament, variance is is just has to be part of the deal. I'm willing to take on more variance there. But when you're still in that mostly survival and build combination mode, uh, I think you have to be very careful with that. So because of that, that's been uh, what I think my formula of success is, I've been watching for that, looking for that in other players, and I saw that in a lot of the players that I played with, uh, people like Matt Hamilton and Joe Bernard, Bob Van Sickle. Uh, those are some examples of guys that I really saw them doing this, where they were being patient but opportunistic as well. And I also, of course, played with some very aggressive players, like Pajan Lou, Saad Ghanem, Alex Moa, Eric Wright. These guys are very aggressive. And so uh, and, and if I think about all of those guys are very successful, at least by my perception. Again, I don't have the numbers. So you don't really know how successful players are because you only see their picture when they win. You don't see their picture every time they lose. Um, but if I were to say that those are all aggressive, what the, the things that I see, uh, uh, I guess, consistently through them is that they are aggressive, but some of them are tight aggressive. And some of them are loose aggressive. Um, very little that I have I seen somebody that was passive winning tournaments. So I think um, I think you can be tight aggressive, or I think you can be loose aggressive. The loose aggressive is going to have more variance. Um, but again, those passive players they maybe lasted a bit longer, but they just seem to get chewed up. They're really dependent on hitting big hands, and if they hit those hands, they got paid off because the aggressive players would keep 
paying them off. But eventually, they just would complain about not getting cards or not hitting flops, and they just got blinded out. So, you know, the tight passive players are just blinded out. The loose passive players are just continually raised off, raised off their hands, uh, or they have their big starting hands cracked because they're just playing them so passively. Um, so I don't know which is better, loose or tight. But the one thing I think is it has to have aggression. So if you're going to be tight, if you're going to be knit, that's fine. But then be aggressive when you do play. I think that's critical. Um, but I do think the idea of being loose or tight is really personality-based. Uh, I mean, I don't know that you can convince yourself mentally to play one way that's different than your personality. Um, if I were to look at the way that people play, um, I would say it's, it's funny, but I think it matches their personality. That or else I'm making some inferences into their personality based on how I see them play. But um, either way, I think uh, if there's ways to introduce aggression into your play, uh, not maniacness, but aggression, I think that's going to help all of us uh, uh, do well in these tournaments. So with that, let me uh, let me take a quick break. I want to thank Running Aces again. Uh, they were also, of course, the host for the Pot of Gold tournament. So great job, guys, that whole crew down there doing a great job. Let's thank them. We'll come back and I'll just kind of close off this episode and, and set up next week. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Okay, so that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to me go on and on. It was very helpful for me just to debrief and think through uh, the Pot of Gold tournament, some of the things that I learned. I would love to have a conversation with you about that if, if you want to do that. A reminder that I do have the adhesive Rec Poker patches, and I would be honored if you wouldn't mind wearing those at a tournament, and I can mail those out to you. We've already got uh, people in a few different states and also in Canada that have asked for patches, so uh, that's exciting. Uh, it's kind of fun to see this thing grow. Got a lot of questions about it from people at Running Aces over the weekend. People are excited about it, want to know how to find it, so uh, thanks to those of you who are out there telling others about it. Uh, I'm just a dude sitting in my living room trying to figure out a way to get better at this game and uh, inviting you all to come along with me and, and learn the game as well. So uh, any feedback you have as far as how do we make this thing better, if you have a hand situation, a topic suggestion, uh, let me know about that as well. Uh, and just a reminder, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, next week we're going to start talking a little bit more about uh, how do we translate from what we learn in the books about the big tournaments and some of the pro input into how to apply that to some of the smaller buy-in tournaments, some of the weekly tournaments. And then we've got a number of other great topics uh, lined up behind that. More and more are coming in, so I've really got to start uh, filtering out uh, which ones we're going to include, but a lot of good stuff. So thanks to everybody for your engagement. And uh, if you see me at a table, man, say hi. Uh, I won't remember your name because I'm horrible with names, but please don't take that personal. But uh, I love to hear from people that are listening to the podcast and what you're enjoying about it and what you'd like to see different. So with that, adios, good luck at the felt, and we will talk to you next week.